millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time around, I'm not quite sure. Obviously, as I record these things, I haven't seen it come out yet. But this is going to encompass two key things and, and welding them together. That is the extremely popular Netflix show, Stranger Things, and also H.P. Lovecraft, a horror writer. More on both of those things in a bit. So if it says something like Stranger Things, Lovecraft, and the occult, that's what I'm basically trying to do this time round. So lots of things to get on with. Let's start with Stranger Things. Created by the Duffer Brothers. The reason why I'm putting this out now is we're kind of in the middle of having season four being released. A little more on why these things are being released in chunks in a bit. But this is one of the examples of Netflix creating its own brand. Hugely popular brand, which... To be honest, because there's been such a big gap because of COVID between seasons three and seasons four, it's taken a while for everybody to fall back in love with it. This is what's happened in my own household. So if you don't know what Stranger Things is, then you don't have Netflix because it's just one of the most downloaded things on Netflix. So it's the story, it's the 1980s. It's the story of these kids at high school and basically strange things happen supernatural things the upside down is is suddenly a place and there's strange monsters lurking the corridors of Hawkins high and all this kind of stuff it is very reminiscent of the horror movies of the 70s and 80s what do you want the master wants you and yet it's being done 30 to 40 years later kind of thing so let's unpack all of this for the record i love stranger things but if you want to start throwing comments at it, if you want to start criticizing it, there are critiques to be made. It is extremely reliant on riffing off, Jem said politely, some people would say ripping off. The master wants you. But riffing at least, inspired by these great horror movies from the 70s and 80s. The master wants you. It wears its badge on its sleeve, quite frankly. In season four, we go to a slightly different form of supernatural, and this is very reminiscent of Nightmare on Elm Street. I need you, Jesse. We got special work to do here, you and me. So much so that Robert England, who 
played Freddy from the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, he's actually got a cameo in this series. If you don't know which one, by the way, when they visit the man with no eyes, that's the guy who used to play Freddy Krueger. Okay? So, you know, giving him a nod doesn't mean that you aren't blatantly riffing off this thing. I hope it's coming across the difference between riffing and ripping. I appreciate those two rather similar phrases. So the first few series, there's a sort of psychic child who's called Eleven, and she ends up being called L. Eleven, that's kind of clever, kind of nice. She has psychic powers, and she's trying to help these children fight the monsters that are coming to get them. And this is, you know, serious bloody stuff. It's genuinely scary in places. Blood flows copiously at times. Swearing and bad language happens too. There are scenes of, of drug taking. This is all the stuff that would get it a rating of 15 in the UK, R in America, which is completely suitable because that's what something like Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th, or all these kind of horror movies would be getting as a rating anyway. But because it's the kids and because it's going back to the 1980s, a lot of parents, including me and my wife, my wife is generally not the sort of person who goes, hey, let's slap on a 15 for an underage child. One of the children at least is under 15. But she loves it. And she says, okay, let's, let's do this. Let's go for it. In fact, the first time my children ever saw something technically rated 18, which is sort of most extreme rating in British commercial cinema. It was at the start of COVID and everything was a bit gloomy. And she went, let's watch Alien. And I looked at her like she was another person. It's like, are you, are you sure you want to show the kids? Like, yeah. And then as soon as Alien was over, it was still sort of early evening. She went, let's watch Aliens. I was like, well, look, in for a penny, in for a pound. And also Aliens is one of my favorite movies. Yeah, let's go for it. So Stranger Things is very much in this genre. But there are some important differences and comparisons to these slasher movies or horror movies like, I don't know, House or Aliens, as I've already mentioned, and all these other ones. You know, the, the sort of hunting teenagers in sort of suburban America is an entire genre, if you like, in American cinema. But the thing is, when these films were being made in, let's say, 1985, 1986, they weren't nostalgic. They were, this is what's cool right now. The kids are riding BMXs, they're listening on Walkmans to Duran Duran or whatever, because this was all achingly cool at the time. Nobody in these 1980 movies were kind of harking back 20, 30 years to, well, that would put you into the time of the Beatles or the early Elvis era. That was just something the parents did. So if you like, the, the big change with Stranger Things is it's playing on this nostalgia. And there are lots of scenes at the high school and everybody is wearing, how can I put this, the most extreme version of 80s fashion. And indeed, if you go back to some of these 80s movies, you see posters from time to time for movies like Teen Wolf, for example. And Teen Wolf's a good example because if you watch that set in a high school, Michael J. Fox is a werewolf, <laughs> Only in the 1980s would you get something like that. But anyway, if you watch it, it's like, okay, there are times when some of the haircuts are kind of 80s. And there, there are moments where it's like, yeah, that's somebody trying to be cool in the 1980s. But the average kid walking down the corridor would be wearing blue jeans, white t-shirt, some kind of jacket. 
and really it could be almost any era quite frankly but because stranger things is leaning heavily on this nostalgia trip everybody is the most 80s possible so while the outfits are technically accurate there are so many of these slightly more extreme slightly more fancy 80s outfits that no high school no school in western europe or america looked like that at any given point and it is it's it sort of scratches that itch you know they they play a song that my wife and i recognize and kind of look at each other with a little wink it's like yeah we remember this song the kids are only hearing it for the very first time it is really interesting hearing my kids seeing the sort of the bullying and stuff like that guy and don't get me wrong my kids go to you know a fairly average school in the area they're not going to eton or anything like that and they're going god the amount of bullying it's like why don't the teachers get involved blah 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 now i can't comment okay i did go to school in the 1980s and there was bullying i was bullied this whole thing about sort of like nerd nerd with dnd &D and things like that you know i'm being shoved around that happened to me so seeing it in the movie it's like yeah fine but of course the movie exaggerates things not just the fashion but also how terrible the school bully was and how ineffective the teachers were as well teachers in the 1980s also took bullying seriously but as we all know snitches get stitches <laughs> appropriate in both prison and school so yeah to them school has, is very very different indeed there's the movie version of 21 Jump Street, and one of the jokes in that, the whole thing is a comedy, it's a really good comedy. One of the big jokes of it is they go back to high school and they're, and they're sort of shocked at, at how much it's changed, and suddenly it's like, oh, you're gay! It's like, yes, I am. And, uh, you know, and the people uh, support me on that. It's like, oh, right, okay, fine. Now, look, for the record, absolutely, we should not be using the term gay in anything derogatory or anything like that, but it was used as a slur in the 1980s and gives you an example of how things have changed all for the better i hasten to add on that one so if you like the other great thing about strange i said there were two things is yes very much it is riffing off these classic 1980s type horror movies but of course they have modern technology and modern budgets things like the original halloween was made for less than half a million dollars and therefore it is a low budget movie it's an indie movie basically and yet Stranger Things has a budget in the tens of millions. Obviously, inflation has kicked in between point A and point B, but even so, Stranger Things is an expensive endeavor. They have really good CGI, but they also use a lot of practical effects. And I've seen a number of interviews with people who carry out special effects, and they say, look, the best way to do it is you enhance real effects, in-camera effects, things that are physically happening, with some digital additions to either hide wires or maybe look at make it look a little bit slimier or whatever it may be animator a tentacle etc and that's exactly what they're doing in stranger things so in a way stranger things is showing you what something like evil dead 2 wished it could have shown you if only it had the budget for it at the time so if you like, Stranger Things is more 80s than the 80s were, which is a strange thing to say, but bear with me. And, and the thing I'm going to sort of come to eventually is the occult. This is going to be probably a slightly longer episode because I have to tie together a number of different things. And I find them really interesting. And I fi find it really interesting how they travel through time as well. It's easy to pick up various forms of the occult 
from the past, thousands of years ago indeed. I will let you into a little secret about what's been going on. I've actually already completed the podcast you're listening to, and then I realized I made reference to the fact that with Stranger Things Series 4, it's in two chunks, and I would come back to it. And I got so carried away with the occult and all the history stuff that I forgot to tell you that. So I figured I'd better do that. So Netflix is not having a good 2022. Subscriber base is for the very first time beginning to shrink. And you get the growth of things like Apple Plus TV and Disney Plus. So there are some serious competitors on the horizon. And the standard format of Netflix is we've created a series and then we're just gonna dump it all in one time and now you can binge watch it. And that's great for the viewers. We've been trained to just sort of gorge on some of these great TV shows, but it doesn't create a lot of buzz online because while people like it, people go through it very quickly. So with, by comparison, something like Disney Plus and let's say Moon Knight from earlier in 2022, you had an episode every single week, which gave people six weeks, a month and a half to talk about, where do you think it's gonna go? What do you think's gonna happen next? Hashtag Moon Knight on Twitter. And so it does seem that Netflix has learned from this and realized, let's chunk it up a little bit. There's no reason if you're going to dump the first seven episodes to not dump the all nine episodes, but it giving it a, like a six week gap between the two releases gives people a chance to talk about where do you think this is going, what's going to happen next, to create some of this self-generated, user-content-generated buzz that is, in essence, free advertising, which hopefully might lure some people back to the channel. So it's an interesting marketing idea, a sign that Netflix itself has to move with the times to stay competitive, and that's why they've done it. So that's Stranger Things. I have great fun with it. I'm trying to avoid spoilers or anything like that. The other thing is, because it's taken, I think, seven years now since the filming of the very first series, the Duffer brothers have been in integral with it. Series four is, is, is chunks of series four are out at the moment, and they're saying that they're about to prep series five, and they're saying series five is the last one. And to be fair, a bit like all these, movies and, and series, things like Nightmare on Elm Street again, you know, there were multiple sequels and it's like how many times can the same bad stuff happen to the same very small town? It is almost ridiculous with something like that. So putting that to one side for a moment, what I find really interesting is that yes, that this occult side of things which leads us onto H.P. Lovecraft, who's very different to this. Now, although H.P. Lovecraft himself has inspired lots of movies, things like Reanimator, In the Mouth of Madness, that's a really underrated, really good early, what's it, I think mid-1990s film, it's technically not an 80s movie, it's I think mid-1990s, starring Sam Neill, great film. I really recommend you, you watch that one. But the thing about H.P. Lovecraft, he actually died in his 40s, he never really saw much success with his own writings. He did an awful lot of sort of bit writings for like fantasy and, and sci-fi magazines and things like that. And so pretty much everything nowadays is an omnibus, a collection of his writings. Some of his stories are literally a couple of pages. Some of them go on for 200 pages, you know, the more ambitious novels or novellas going on. Um, 
So perhaps the most famous one is The Mountains of Madness. Lovecraft redefined the horror genre. And what do I mean by that? Because up until Lovecraft, it was always a thing that was the problem. Could be a vampire, could be the devil, could be a ghost, could be a werewolf. But what he created is something that's now referred to as cosmic horror. He created creatures which couldn't be properly described. Pretty useful for a writer, to be fair. Like, I can't describe it. But he didn't just say that. He would talk about indescribable colours. Basically, seeing these creatures. And, and to be fair, he's got a point. If we look at something like the Bible, the interactions between mere mortals and the divine are incredibly visceral moments. Think of, for example, Moses and the burning bush. The point there is that God is so awesome, basically Moses cannot see God. It would drive him mad, it would blow him apart or something like that. So the burning bush is almost like the afterglow. It's a bit like when somebody does a flash in your eye. The flash has gone, but you still got that sort of after blur in your eye from the flash. That's what the burning bush is meant to sort of symbolize, the aftershocks of, of God. And if you read that part of the Bible, Moses is sort of almost overwhelmed. This is not a calm experience. This is like standing in the face of a hurricane. And, and so there have been sort of little elements of this in the past, like in the Bible. But Lovecraft makes a really good point that if a mere mortal was to come across something like this, it would probably drive them mad. They would be no use to the story from that point onwards. It's like gibbering madness. Pity poor Tom, for his nose is frozen, and he does shiver, and he's mad! Impossible angles, other dimensions, all of this came from Lovecraft. So quite often, and fairly uniquely for the time, the other thing, which wasn't necessarily evil, I mean, some of it was, but some of it was just like the old ones, which is an idea that has been reused again and again in science fiction, fantasy, comic books even. The idea that the, there's these kind of elder gods out there. I mean, this is literally a phrase used from Elden Ring. So, you know, this is a 2022 video game that's sort of blowing the doors off everybody. I've done a couple of episodes on that. Feel free to listen to those. This is something that's being used in 2022 that is coming from like the 1930s. So the idea of these, these old gods that created the universe, that, that the Bible was just made up by human beings, what's really going on is there, there are these incredibly powerful, incredibly unknowable creatures that just drift around the universe. And we are to them what amoebas are to us. They're irrelevant. They're not evil necessarily, but they just don't care. And this was a genius idea. The most famous creation, and you might have heard of this, there's a whole role-playing game called Call of Cthulhu, or sometimes called Call of Cthulhu. He deliberately created these very hard to say phrases, which is important and goes back to the history stuff as well. And Cthulhu itself is a giant humanoid covered in scales with gigantic bat wings on its back with a head of kind of like an octopus. And, and something like that has never been described before in literary history. But if you like, that was the exception to the rule, because almost always when he was describing stuff, you couldn't really describe it. It couldn't be put down to, into a human experience. It's a bit like trying to explain what a parachute jump is like to somebody who has never even seen an airplane. There's just too many steps between 
talking to a caveman about what it is, like I said, you know, parachuting, something like that. The caveman just couldn't get it. There, there just aren't enough points of reference for them to understand. So with that in mind, that's what Lovecraft is. But Lovecraft himself has a big, big problem. So H.P. Lovecraft, he was a strange man. And as I said, he talks about this kind of unknowableness. And he's an example where if you just want to read his stories, it's fascinating stuff. I'm not going to say it's not potentially offensive because he's trying to sort of psychologically pick at you with his writing. So it is a challenging read. But in his private life, he was a huge, problematic and very proud racist. He wrote an incredibly offensive poem, which I am not going to say anything more than that. Please do not look it up online. It's that bad, okay? Please. So there is therefore this conversation around Lovecraft, which really only sort of has started in the last 10, 15 years, about should we give this guy any airtime whatsoever? And I think, you know, that's a conversation that we need to have. But it was beautifully caught by this TV series, sadly it only did one series, called Lovecraft County. And what it was, was about a black couple going through the Jim Crow area of Southern America. So we're talking about the time where there's segregation of the races and basically being a black person out at night, you could literally be arrested for that. Yes, obviously that's a racist law, but also in this, so, so that's what's happening to these people. But on top of that, they're having to do with the tentacled, unknowable, slimy, malevolent H.P. Lovecraft type monsters as well. There's two monsters. There's the unknowable monsters of the cosmic horror and the very real immediate horror of racism in Southern America in the 1960s. What a brilliant way to basically square the circle. Because there are a lot of black horror fans who really like Lovecraft, but obviously have this difficulty that if they were to ever sit in the same room at the same time, Lovecraft would hate them. You know, that's a horrible thing to say. The man clearly wasn't very nice. The thing is, though, he was a strange man anyway. He was largely agoraphobic or agoraphobic. I'm never quite sure how to say that one. I have always thought it was agoraphobic. Fear of going outside, but he also had extreme fear of the cold as well, which is why he tended to live in, in sort of like the warmer parts of America. And yes, he died early, so he had his health problems. This is why The Mountains of Madness is one of his greatest ones, because he wrote it about these people going to the South Pole. And there are these mountains in the South Pole. And he was writing it basically just slightly before anybody had been to the South Pole. So it's almost like this could happen. And there was a time when Guillermo del Toro was going to turn it into a movie starring Tom Cruise. And I would have paid handsomely to have seen that film. But and Guillermo del Toro has, on a number of occasions, clearly channeled a bit of like this Lovecraftian. I mean, his surname is even used as a description for types of horror. But what's interesting is any of his out-and-out -out books and stories haven't really been turned into anything satisfying. I think nowadays, with the advent of like digital special effects, people are starting to have a go at it. There's The Color of Night, which is a story by Lovecraft. It stars Nick Cage. And it's, it's a pretty good, pretty good movie, basically. I've mentioned the TV show as well. But interestingly, there's also the Lovecraft investigations. 
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And that is a series of podcasts, which I'm sure you can find on most podcast things, but it's specifically done by the BBC. It's on BBC Sounds. This was recommended to me. Go, you should do a podcast on it. It's like, there isn't enough to just do it on that. Now, I have listened to pretty much all of it, and they use every audio trick in the book. So, look, this stuff was written at the very early 1900s, and therefore podcasts were not a thing. But also, some of the language, this is the other problem, because sometimes you, when you're writing for a magazine, you're paid by the word. And Lovecraft, there are, I remember my friend who introduced me to Lovecraft and said, yeah, when you get to the point about the description of the town, just skip two pages. Because, you know, he literally would describe a character going from one part in the town to the other part in the town. It doesn't build character. It doesn't really set the scene. It is just wasting words. And I don't need to know how many streets this character walked down. So you know, he's flawed. Well, he's very flawed as a human being, but his writing is flawed too. But the core thing was genuinely wow we've never seen something like this before a bit like tolkien in that regards you know tolkien is a hard read he's he's not a great writer but he's a brilliant visionary in that regards so what you've got with these this podcast is these podcast investigators who normally do true crime have heard about other things there are three series and each series is basically repurposing one of lovecraft stories and I'll be honest with you, I cannot quite work out whether I love them or not. They are basically radio dramas. And the thing is, with a podcast, obviously I do one, 
and I've listened enough to them and lots of other ones. I like lots of podcasts that when you're hearing somebody pretending to be on site having a conversation, it's just too polished. I'm just constantly reminded that this isn't a conversation. These are some actors with some brilliant sound design around it where things go almost sometimes literally bump in the night. But it's wonderful that you sometimes get recordings and people are just talking. And then while they're talking, obviously oblivious, they suddenly get some sort of whispered evil thing in the background. It's like, oh, I heard the evil thing. It's The master wants you. It is really good in regards to that. I will give the show 10 out of 10 for its intent and 10 out of 10 for its execution. But I'm not entirely sure that it could ever possibly have worked flawlessly. But it's got a lot more downloads than this podcast. So, you know, what, what do I know? But you absolutely might want to look out for the Lovecraft investigations. And yeah, there are even sort of bonus episodes which are sort of like static mixed in with sort of like hidden messages. And it, 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 it's a wonderful Easter egg hunt basically going on there. Very, very clever. But in that show, they do their homework. They mention people that wouldn't necessarily be known by Lovecraft himself, but they make passing reference to Jack Parson. And, you know, that what they say sounds insane, but Jack Parson genuinely was somebody working in rocketry and avionics for the US military in World War II. He died fairly young in his 40s, but also he was a genuine full-on Thelenic occultist so he believed in lots of these crazy things as well they also mention alistair crowley come on to him in a moment and also they talk about the the tool or thule cult which was key to the nazis so all of this stuff sounds a bit crazy and sounds like jim you're you're about to spill into conspiracy theory territory i'm not honest and it's really interesting to me that They've kind of done their homework, and what's brilliant is they start layering on fact with fiction, and you're not quite sure where one ends and the other one starts. Another classic example is that Lovecraft invented a book called The Necronomicon, and it's referenced in a number of his things, and it was written by this madman in, in the Arabian Peninsula. And sometimes people have only seen snippets of it and there's sort of debate about is there such a thing as an entire Necronomicon. If this sounds familiar, by the way, for the Stranger Thing fans, it's like, hang on, isn't that something in the Evil Dead movies? Yes, it is. It shows you once again the influence of Lovecraft because the ne Necronomicon, which was meant to be full of dark magic, forbidden knowledge, the truth behind everything, lifting the veil from the eyes of humanity, all that good stuff. That is all made up. The Necronomicon doesn't exist. Now, if you go onto Amazon, you can buy a copy because somebody's actually gone around and actually written one that now fits everything. And it goes back to, again, this sort of allure of the occult. And I, I, I find this stuff great. And, and I sort of was skimming across the top of this myself when I was a teenager at school. Like I said, my friend, shout out to Simon, was sort of like reading voraciously H.P. Lovecraft and sort of said, oh, have a look at this and have a look at that. Check out this omnibus and all this kind of stuff. And we were doing role-playing games as well. And like I said, there literally was. And we played a little bit of Call of Cthulhu. And obviously this is all playing into the 1980s and Stranger Things thing of like, oh, D&D &D and the occult and people blaming it. For full information on that, do listen to my episode about Dungeons and Dragons. I'm not going to go into this one right now. Yeah, so that's something that, that was going on with the Necronomicon, this forbidden knowledge and book 
Another person who's mentioned in passing in the Lovecraft investigations is Alistair Crowley, and he is your classic occultist. Again, we're talking about early 20th century. At one point, he was referred to as the most evil man in the world. And that, funnily enough, stopped being said once you got things like World War II. <laughs> and he nearly got onto the front cover of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. If you look at the shooting of that album cover for the Beatles, that's sort of like that definitive 60s image, there are a couple of people that they didn't put on. They're sort of shoved to the side, you know, these cardboard cutouts. Crowley's one of them. Hitler's another one. So, yeah, Crowley and Hitler were clearly seen as similarly controversial, and yet you might not necessarily have heard of him. Well, who is he, and what did he do that got that title? Well, he was a full-on occultist, particularly at the end of the, of the 19th century, so in the very late 1800s. We have this whole thing about spiritualism and stuff like this, but people, again, were talking about this sort of unlocking of the potential, the occult side of things trying to create magic and summons of dark creatures or energies or things like that. And Crowley really, really, really got into it and actually created a society around him. He ended up moving to Italy under the Mussolini fascists. He and his party just did lots of things. I'm going to try and keep things uh, very, very clean because I don't want to have an explicit rating as a podcast. But one of the key things that he carried out was magical rituals which also involved intercourse as well uh, sometimes with uh, ladies sometimes with men sometimes with a group of them it was weird shall we just put it there also an awful lot of, of various kind of narcotics were used as well to heighten their senses and take them to a new, another dimension in a way it sort of you can see why it appeals to the Beatles because there are echoes of that, perhaps without all the magical rituals and things like that, but the, the ethos of sort of free love and, you know, consequence-free consumption of narcotics was very much the 1960s and the kind of hippie movement. And it, it all, funnily enough, it all crashed and burned because, do you know what? Drugs aren't good for you. If you keep taking them, you'll start getting addicted to them and they can cause health problems. And obviously, lots of unprotected reproduction with other people can lead to other forms of illness as well. So it turned out that they had, <laughs> they had less contact with Cthulhu and a lot more contact with the doctors to get a nice ointment for that. And uh, yes, yeah, so no matter praying was going to stop that thing itching. So anyway, I move, move off quickly. They weren't actually praying to the Cthulhu stuff. I'm just using that as an example. But this idea of this occult and forbidden knowledge just goes back so, so far. I will give you a quote, actually. From something that, that's actually... I do I have an entry in my book, Slinkies and Snake Bombs. What is Slinkies and Snake Bombs? It's over 150 just weird and wonderful facts from history. So I've got one here, and it, helpfully, it's actually a quote from the Bible. So this is the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 5, verse 9. This is when Jesus is dealing with a troubled man and asks him his name, and he says, and this is the quote from the Bible, My name is a legion, for we are many, which I say is probably the most chilling part of the entire Bible, and is something that has been used in things like the Exorcist. Indeed, this, this section, this little fact from 
Slinkies and Snake Bombs by Jem Daduchu, available in all good bookshops and online as well, published through Amberley Publishing, is actually Exorcism is a Sinister Thing, and I talk about how sinister that line is. But the fact is that we do get forms of exorcism in most of the major world religions. There are rituals for Jews and Muslims and, of course, Christians to get rid of evil spirits. Indeed, they even get the idea of, uh, of exorcism in Buddhism, for example, where literally they carry out a religious ceremony every year called the Guta, which means literally the offering. And it's held on the 29th day of the 12th Tibetan month with its focus driving out all negativity. Obviously that includes evil spirits, but this is just sort of, if you like, a cleansing. Whereas something like a, a Christian exorcism is there is a specific need at this specific point because this person has actually been taken over by evil spirits. So that's just one example. I did do an episode with Harry Potter and magic, but magic I'm going to say is a little bit different to the occult. The occult is where you're kind of trying to set up a, a group Let's call it a religion, basically. Alistair Crowley, in essence, did create his own little religion around him, and he was the top dog of that religion. So it's people trying to find another way to commune with the supernatural and see what happens. And if you look at any of the texts to do with this kind of stuff, again, at any time in history, in any religious context, all these rituals are extremely taxing. And I actually read a thesis on this saying that the reason why quite often there's, you know, you have to starve yourself for 12 days or you, there's a very, very specific list of things that you can eat while you're cleansing your body to get ready for the ritual, whatever it may be. And the reason why these were so austere and strict and in essence hard to follow was because it ain't going to work. So if it doesn't work, does that mean that this is a whole load of hooey or did you secretly eat a bag of crisps when you're meant to be eating lettuce for the whole week. So basically there's always the excuse of you didn't cleanse yourself properly. You didn't commit fully to it. So I, I, I think that that's a really interesting get out of jail free card for the people who come up with this nonsense. And it is, although I always like one person when I was talking to it about it saying, and this is again, a very chilling line. You don't play with the occult. The occult plays with you. <laughs> I'll let that sink in for a moment. And, and if you like, this is the thing that there, even today in a rational society, well, as in the 1980s show, people genuinely thought that Dungeons and Dragons was somehow a manual to do occult ceremonies and summon evil malevolent spirits. Ridiculous. But it still exists to this day. When people look back at John Dee, John Dee is another great example of somebody who gets mixed into all of this. So. Who's John Dee? John Dee was a natural philosopher, modern day we would call them a scientist, who worked for Queen Elizabeth I. So we are back, give or take, 500 years in England. And John Dee was an amazing man. He studied so many different things, but he also created this completely unknown language, which he claimed was the language of angels. And I've seen a number of people going, well, how can you explain somebody creating an entire language in one day that has to have come from, you know, the almighty, the powerful, the people out there, the, the, the spirits beyond, all that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, or he might have lied that he did it all in one day. That's the simplest solution to this. And it, and it isn't exactly a 
a language we've never seen before. There are sort of like hints that it's been influenced by things like ancient Greek and Latin and things like that. So, you know, it hasn't just come out of thin air. Also, wouldn't you have thought that the angelic language would have had echoes in all other languages anyway? So it would be a bit weird if there's no points of reference to it whatsoever. The thing is, John Dee was so unusual that if you want to sort of construct this argument that he was a secret occultist trying to, I don't know, stop things like the Spanish Armada using dark magic to create the storms that actually stopped the Spanish Armada. John Dee was so unusual. You know, if you want to create that little narrative in your head, you do you. John Dee was so unusual. But he wouldn't have ever thought of that. He considered himself a good Christian. Nobody at the time was threatening to burn him as a witch or anything like that. John Dee was so unusual. He was just a scientist who was sort of got on with his stuff. Bit like Leonardo da Vinci. People were very much tut-tutting da Vinci for getting cadavers and dissecting them so that he could understand human anatomy better. Pretty good idea to be a, a great artist, but that was sort of distasteful that you're doing that with dead bodies. Are you a weirdo or something? So yes, these people were a little bit weird. John Dee was so unusual. But what's interesting is John Dee wasn't seen as any weirder than like I say, a Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Rene Descartes, whoever. And and so, yeah, we have to take that into account. If he wasn't being charged with witchcraft, which is something that Anne Boleyn, you know, the second wife of Henry VIII, the father of Queen Elizabeth I. So it was something that you could have been charged with at that time. He was never charged with anything like that. Again, the conspiracy people go, well, that's because he cast a spell on everybody or he had so much power over everyone that they didn't dare do it. And, and this is the thing. You want to believe this stuff? Great. Wonderful for you. The other bit I want to talk about is the Codex Gygas, also known as the Devil's Bible. This version of the Bible, plus Psalms and lots of other things as well, again, to like natural philosophy, which nowadays we'd call science, comes from the modern-day Czech Republic and is from the early 1200s. It is said that a priest was caught doing dark occult things, and so as a punishment, he was given an empty book, a pen, an ink, feathers, quills, and ink, and he was walled in alive into his cell. And before he died, he wrote out this huge colossal book. And that is the Devil's Bible, the Codex Gygas. And indeed, right at the end, there is a horrific full page image of the devil. Of course, monks at the time spent their entire lives writing out books. And it seems that this particular monk spent his entire life doing that. There's no evidence that anybody was bricked into a wall or anything sort of dark or supernatural. And there are lots of weird little scrawlings in the sidelines of these manuscripts. There are wonderful images of men being attacked by giant snails. Uh, not just men, but knights in shining armor being attacked by snails. So all kinds of weird things you, you can find in the margins. And it seems that this guy just happened to draw a big one at the end. The rest of the book is not full of like occult messages or things like that. It's attempt at studying things like the weather as well as biblical passages too. It is not a dark occult image, but it's been turned into one because of all the fake stories around it. So the interesting thing about the occult as a whole, I will tell you in a second, because I'm just going to remind you, please subscribe, share the love, tell somebody, one other person about this podcast. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you very much. 
But also on top of that, if you could follow me on Twitter, I'm at GemDaDuccio on Twitter, and every week I put out little fun tweets about this is the topic this week with a link to the Acasting. If you could give us a review on whatever podcast format you're listening to, that would really help us spread the word as well. It, it sort of changes the algorithms more people can find us. Please, please, if you can help this little podcast grow into a medium-sized podcast and maybe eventually world domination or multi-dimensional domination i'd appreciate that thank you very much so back to back to the whole occult thing what's interesting is generally if you look through history if another religion is carrying out rituals the competitive religion in the area will invariably say it's bad it's dark magic it is the occult they're doing it wrong basically they are praying to the wrong gods it does depend Quite often in things like the Bible, for example, particularly in the Old Testament, there were competing religions in the area. And so they're always seen as like dark, evil, nasty, uh, a shade to the light of the one true God. It is interesting, though, that when you get into polytheistic religions, ones with multiple gods, some gods are seen as... So they're not worried about competing against other religions, but there are these competing ways of getting attention, if you like, as a deity in that particular faith. And so you get, you know, some of these gods are seen as more sinister as others, you know, particularly gods to do with either death or destruction, literally death as in like the underworld or afterlife, whatever it may be. Their followers might be following them for a specific reason, sort of making sure, for example, that their ancestors are happy and safe in the other world. But to other groups who might be spending more time following you know, the god of the hunt or the god of the sun or whatever, they might be seeing that, that group in particular as a bit odd, as sort of, you get this term, necromancy literally magic of the dead and a necromancer is something that you can literally get in something like Dungeons and Dragons and there is a reference to the necromancer in The Hobbit and it turns out the necromancer is a sort of a, a resurrected form of Sauron who's not yet reached his peak power again. That's a whole thing. But it, it literally in the past has meant you know you're fiddling around with powers to do with death and that is not something that generally is seen as positive. What's interesting is if you're talking about something like the Aztec religion, then the, the mainstream was about death and human sacrifice, which of course, when the Christians turned up, they had a fairly good argument that this lot should perhaps stop practicing their religion because you shouldn't be killing people. But yeah, I mean, Christianity has its own issues in that area of death and destruction, okay? but. It is really interesting that this idea of the occult, forbidden knowledge that can be kept in something like a grimoire, which is a French word, which comes the 19th century. And actually books were invented by the Romans. Prior to the Romans, people didn't think about having a hard casing around leaves of parchment. So you get these scrolls, papyri in, and papyrus in ancient Egypt and things like that. So, yeah, once you've got a portable book, that book might be full of just prayers to your religion. But if it's found by somebody of another religion, it'll look sinister and evil. And you're, you're not praying to the right gods, so therefore these must be evil gods. And this is something that is perpetrated again and again in religions throughout times, throughout the millennia, throughout the 
the continents of the world, it is something that is a bit of a consistent point. Right up to today, where people are still buying Necronomicons, casting runes, that's a whole ridiculous thing. There, there are all kinds of bits and bobs from different religions that have been picked up by the New Age, and also by just sort of teenagers sitting there trying to have a black mass or something like that. Ouija boards, by the way, Milton Bradley game, M&B. It was never, ever, ever linked to the supernatural until after it was released. It was meant to be a bit of fun, but then it became a way to deal with the spirits in the afterlife. No evidence of that whatsoever. It was a board game, like Monopoly, for heaven's sakes. So yeah, it, I'm going to bring it all back. I might have talked about some weird stuff, and I pointed out how this stuff has been believed over the centuries, but it's nonsense. Nobody has ever been able to cast at will a spell that has brought something from another dimension. Do you know why? Because modern day physics and science proves that this isn't a thing. It's made up. Now, if you have the faith, if you believe, you say, ah, oh, Jem, you don't know about my psychic energies and things like that. That's what you believe. Good for you. But just don't tell me it's fact. Facts and opinions are different. Different religions can't even agree on the basics between different religions, so why would they all have necessarily the answers to what's going on in terms of alternate dimensions and gibbering madness, as Lovecraft would have put it? So sleep tight, everybody, and another podcast coming soon. The master wants you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.